The subject that we have been given for this session by the ANIAT Network teaching team is uh, healing the past. And of course, this flows right through this theme that we've already been introduced to of uh, prophetic witness. So what I'd like to do before we get into specifically healing the past is just make a few more general statements about the ministry of the prophet. When we look at biblical prophecy, let me point out four major characteristics of biblical prophecy. First is truth-telling. The prophet speaks on behalf of God to the people. So the call to prophecy or the assignment from God to speak prophetically is an assignment of truth-telling. Secondly, it is a call to repentance for national sins and for religious sins. And for those two reasons alone, the uh, ministry of the prophet is healing. How come? Well, because when you tell the truth and when you repent of the evil, that is going to open up the door to healing. And so prophets are healers. The third characteristic of biblical prophecy is a call to purity of heart. Kingdom righteousness produces holiness of life. And the fourth component of biblical prophecy, a promise of restoration and blessing. I am making all things new. Now here's a note about the ministry of the prophet. The prophet is responsible to hear and deliver God's message accurately. This is why prophecy takes place beginning in quietness, in stillness, in solitude. Um, because we have to hear God and we have to hear God accurately. The prophet is not responsible for how the hearers respond. In fact, the prophet can be assured that the majority of, he of hearers will not hear and respond profitably. So this is a really important thing to know about prophecy. Who are the prophets who were popular? The people mainly didn't listen to Moses. The people mainly didn't listen to the Old Testament prophets. The people in the main didn't listen to John the Baptist. And the people in the main didn't listen to Jesus. So prophets are unpopular. Why? They tell the truth. And they call for repentance. And people don't like to hear the truth. And they don't like to be called to repentance. So just um, a word of caution, a word of sobriety for those who are called to be prophets. Um, the biblical reference the biblical record warns us against false prophets. Now, I don't think we can talk adequately about the calling of a prophet without talking about the biblical warnings of false prophets. The Old Testament prophets are full of it. Jesus is full of it, warning us against false prophets. Here is a passage from Jeremiah. Listen to this. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction and my people love to have it so. 
So in the day of Jeremiah, the prophets that the people of God were listening to were not the true prophets like Jeremiah. They were listening to the false prophets. My people love to have it so. So brothers and sisters, we are well advised when we are cautious about prophets that are popular. We are well advised to be cautious. How do we discern the false prophet from the true? So let me give you three imp indications of how to discern the false prophet from the true. One, a spirit of arrogance in contrast to an attitude of humility. Two, a promise of triumph which omits the necessity of repentance. We are seeing this in multiple ways in our day. Triumphalism being prophesied, but no call to repentance. And three, an idolatry of power. An idolatry of power, confusing God's kingdom with a political kingdom of the world. And this is, we can trace this right on out through church history, how the church has been deceived in confusing God's kingdom with political kingdoms of power. And it's rampant in our day. So characteristics that help us define pro false prophecy from true prophecy. Now let's move into our main theme, healing the past. Let me give you four steps to healing the past. There are more that we could give. But let's concentrate in our time together in this session on these four steps. Step number one, we face the truth. We face the truth. Another word of that is confession. So healing the past, we face the truth. Secondly, we grieve the sin. Facing the truth is not just some kind of objective academic exercise. We grieve the sin. We become aware of the sin. Our hearts are broken and torn because of our sin. Three, we bring the sin to the cross and we ask God to break its power. So systems of evil, where do they come from? God created the world and he created man, men and women, and he gave us dominion over the world, over his creation. That means what we do has consequences. Decisions we make have consequences. And when we invite the spiritual darkness in, the spiritual darkness is given permission to come, and the spiritual darkness comes and takes root. And that passes on from generation to generation. Now what God calls those who are called prophetically to do is break the power that the darkness has been given. How do we do that? In one word, the cross. When Christ died on the cross, the Son of God, broken because of the sins of humanity, when he died on the cross, the power of Satan was broken. And the power of evil is broken 
when it is brought to the cross. It's not going to be broken through social action, as good as social action is, because a problem is not social. The problem is spiritual. And we have to learn how to bring the spiritual darkness to the cross that it might be broken. We who are born again, we have within us the life of Christ. We have been given the authority by Christ in his name to bring the power of evil to the cross that its grip might be broken. And then fourthly, we ask those we have wronged for forgiveness. We seek reconciliation. Now, when I ask for forgiveness from those whom I have wronged, that's my choice to ask for forgiveness. Now, the person or the group that I've wronged, now it's their choice. Are they going to forgive me? And if they don't, I respect that. I can't make their decision, but I can respect it. And whenever someone says to me, look, I just can't forgive, I have great respect for that. There are times when we just can't forgive. The beautiful thing is Jesus, as we become his disciple and learn from him how to live life, teaches us and brings us to the point where we can forgive. So I ask for forgiveness and I seek reconciliation. Reconciliation requires two parties. So when I have wronged someone or some group and I ask for forgiveness, that's my choice. When they accept my forgiveness and forgive me, reconciliation can take place. If they don't accept and receive it, then we're not yet at reconciliation. And that's got to be okay. That's the reality of the human condition. The brokenness, the sin is not yet dealt with. Now, we want to follow now through in what we're uh, saying the rest of this session with these four steps. We face the sin, we grieve the sin, we bring the sin to the cross, we ask for forgiveness. So let's start with facing the sin. We face the sin, we tell the truth. What does this look like? So I'd like to couch my comments on this using three different countries or peoples. And the first one is Israel. How does facing the truth relate to Israel? Well, here's another passage from Jeremiah. Now here's Jeremiah bringing the word of God to the people of God. What does Jeremiah say? Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. On every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. The word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of God. So this is an example of the prophet commissioned by God, bringing God's truth to God's people, calling on God's people to face the truth and repent of their sin. 
What does it mean to stand with Israel? Now, I'm going to tell you in a minute about my wife, and I hope that's going to relieve any question you might have as to whether or not I'm pro-Israel. I am pro-Israel through and through, through and through, through and through. What does it mean to be pro-Israel? So those of us that are pro-Israel must be careful not to be romantic about it. What does it mean to be pro-Israel? Well, what does it mean to God? Is God pro-Israel? What does it mean if God is pro-Israel? It means an unchanging commitment to Israel. Nothing going to change in God's commitment to Israel. It also means an uncompromising requirement that Israel face their sin and repent. Both of those things are what it means for God to be committed to Israel. Now, let's talk for a minute about Germany. I really want to talk to you about Germany. My wife, Hannah, is a German Jew. She was born in 1932, escaped Germany as a seven-year-old unaccompanied child refugee five weeks before the outbreak of World War II. Her parents, Markus and Amelie Zack, unable to leave, were gassed to death in the Nazi death camp in Kelmno, Poland on May the 3rd, 1942, by Germans. Twenty years ago, God began to call Hannah to return to Germany to demonstrate the power of Christ to heal the wounds of history through forgiveness and reconciliation. We have both been deeply moved and changed by the grief, confession, and repentance of so many German friends. I, 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 I've got a million stories and I don't have time for that but I can't tell you the inspiration and the learning that Hannah and I have received from Germans. And I'm thinking right now of Ubertus and Dodo Benecke. They have become very, very dear friends. They, by the way, are very involved now also with Antioch Network and the new work that's been born there in Germany in the States called Quellen. We were invited by Ubertus and Dodo and other German friends to go with them to Auschwitz. I don't know, more than 10 years ago. Germans going to Auschwitz. Why would Germans want to go to Auschwitz? Auschwitz is an incredibly painful place to, for anybody to go, particularly Germans. And they wanted to go and they wanted Jewish people to go with them. And so they invited Hannah. And of course, to get Hannah, they had to get me. So I could go as well. And we spent a couple of days walking around Auschwitz. And I've got one picture in my mind of Uberto standing in the place in Birkenau. There's a place there where the Nazis were uh, gassing Jews and incinerating their bodies so fast that they couldn't keep up. And so they were bringing the ashes out and burying them in a place in the grounds. And for years afterwards, whenever it rained, there'd be a pool there and the water would be white because of all the bones that had been buried there. And I've got this picture of Alberto just standing there looking at this place. And you can see the grief, the grief in his face and in his body at the thought, my people did this. Deep, deep grief. Many, many other stories that could be told. We have learned so much from Germans. Some of our closest friends are Germans. On the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe, 
Frank Walter Steinmeier, the president of Germany, was giving a speech in Berlin. And in that speech he said, talking about their national past, we Germans carry responsibility for the murder of millions and the suffering of millions. That breaks our hearts to this day. This country can only be loved with a broken heart. And one thing that makes Germany post-World 1945 different than Germany pre-1945 is the fact that the German governments and the German people largely, right from the beginning, acknowledged the evil, acknowledged the wrong, and wanted to make restitution. And no end of German leaders have gone to Israel and spoken in the Knesset and gone to Yad Vashem and acknowledged the evil that their forefathers did against the Jewish people. So what's all that about? It's about the first step in healing the past. It's about facing the truth. Now step two, we grieve the sin. And here's where I would like your permission to talk about America. Now, this is not easy for me. First of all, I know that the audience that's going to hear this talk is not all Americans. So please forgive me, brothers and sisters from other countries. Um, I'm not trying to impose on you my own American ideas or thoughts or perspective. Uh, but I am an American, and I would like, with your permission, to use this as a time to tell the truth about my sin and the sins of my people. And also, what I'm about to say predates by many years recent events in America. I think everybody is aware of what's going on in America today in terms of response to the Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera. All this is began years prior to that. America, we grieve the sin. A white police officer pinned down a black man in the street, pressing his knee into his neck for almost nine minutes. The man died pleading, I can't breathe. George Floyd's death in Minneapolis set off days of protest all across America. Crowds responding to recent killings of African Americans. African Americans killed by white police officers, shot dead by white people with guns. Where does all this come from? What are its roots? When Minnesota Governor Tim Walz commented on these events, he offered this answer. These are things that have been brewing in this country for 400 years. In Louisville, Kentucky, Governor Andy Bashir was even more specific. He said, protests there reflected a city still affected by the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. American racism gushes forth from our unhealed past. In order to be able to enslave people, you have to regard them as inferior, even subhuman. Such evil cannot be eradicated 
by social action alone. Its roots go too deep. Racism is a spiritual problem. Only the cross of Christ can break its power. My personal grief and confession, brothers and sisters, if you will allow me, my personal grief and confession. I was born in America. That was God's decision. I am so thankful for America. I and my family have been deeply blessed by this country. I honor my forefathers. I also carry a deep grief concerning America. I stand before you now to identify with my forefathers and to confess our sins, my sins, to God and to you. There's an academic discipline called African-American history. For the most part, African-American history is also white American history. It's my history. In 1619, in Jamestown, Virginia, settlers bought 10 to 20 Africans from pirates. This began almost 250 years when my people enslaved people of African descent. I am a Virginian. My family has been Virginians for generations. I have relatives who seek proudly to trace our family history back to the Jamestown colony. Over 12 million Africans were shipped in chains across the Atlantic, the largest forced migration in history until World War II. Almost two million of them died in barbaric ways on the way. Of these 400,000 were sold into what is now the United States, into a brutal system of slavery unlike anything that had previously existed. Chattel slavery was a system in which people of African descent were treated under law, not as human beings, but as property. Property to be owned, to be bought, to be sold. This slavery was not conditional or temporary, but racial, inherited, permanent. Enslaved persons could be mortgaged, traded, bought, sold, used as collateral. They themselves could own nothing, inherit nothing, will nothing. They were not allowed to be educated. They could not legally marry, they had no claim on their own children. Children could be taken from parents at any time and sold for the profit of the owner. How does that feel, parents? A new child comes into the world. Doesn't belong to you, belongs to the owner. One day the chances are good. The owner will sell your child for profit. Enslaved could be tortured, raped, murdered, worked to death, and often were. All this required a deeply rooted belief system 
supported socially and legally. In 1865, the system of slavery ended, but the structural belief system lived on. Now, just an overview of what happened among enslaved people from 1619, when the first slaves were brought to 50 miles from where I was born, to um, the Declaration of Independence. Just an overview, a couple of points. Enslaved Africans transformed the land into which they were sold. It became some of the most successful colonies of the British Empire. They grew the cotton that at the height of slavery was the nation's most valuable commodity, accounting for one half of all American exports. They built the plantations of many of America's founders. Ten of our first 12 presidents were enslavers. They built vast fortunes for white people north and south. At one time, the second richest man in the nation was a Rhode Island slave trader. Profits from black people's labor helped the young United States pay off our war debts and finance some of our most prestigious universities. Buying, selling, insuring, and financing the bodies and products of enslaved people made Wall Street and New York world centers of insurance and trading. Think of that. The roots of the wealth of New York are the insuring, the buying, the selling of enslaved people and the products of their labor. Now from 1776, America's independence from Britain, to the Civil War, a couple of points. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson penned the now famous words of the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Self-evident. All men are created equal. Anybody can look and see. All men are created equal. As he wrote those words, one-fifth of the population of the American colonies were enslaved people. Jefferson owned at least 130 people who worked his plantation at Monticello. I grew up 65 miles from Monticello. We used to go to Monticello. It was a wonderful outing excursion to go to Monticello. We would go there. We would see, oh, how wonderful Mr. Jefferson was, how intelligent he was, how creative he was. He did all these wonderful things. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. And as we went around Monticello, we would see the quarters where the slaves lived. And it never dawned. It never dawned. The light never went on. These were enslaved people, enslaved by the author of the Declaration of Independence. Human denial, human blockout, my history. Uh, liberty was not the inalienable right of all men. Only men who were white, by the way, only women weren't included either. Subjugation was the legal status of those who were black. In 1794, Eli Whitney patented the cotton gin it revolutionized the production of cotton and greatly expanded slavery in the American South. My home city, Richmond, Virginia, 
became the epicenter of the internal slave trade. Buying and selling of Negroes created great fortunes. You see, what was happening is down in the South, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, these areas, the, the cotton gin caused the need for more cotton, the need for more cotton, the need for more cotton. Well, how do you get more cotton? Through more slaves. Where do you get more slaves? And so Richmond was the epicenter of the slave trade. So slave traders in Richmond would send out representatives into the West, into Maryland, all up and down the East Coast, looking to buy Negroes, bringing these Negroes back to Richmond. They were sold and sent down the river. That's where the phrase down the river came from. People being bought and sold. By the early 1800s, white Americans had considerable social and economic investment in the doctrine of black inferiority. The US Supreme Court, hear this all Americans, the US Supreme Court enshrined this thinking in law in its 1857 Dred Scott decision, big decision by the Supreme Court. This rule that blacks, enslaved or free, came from a slave race. Democracy was for citizens. The Negro race, the Supreme Court ruled, was a separate class of persons which the founders had not regarded as citizens. The idea that black people were not merely enslaved but a slave race further solidified endemic racism in much of the American population. By 1860, there were more millionaires living in the lower Mississippi Valley than anywhere else in the United States. All of them were slave owners. The four million American slaves were the largest single asset in the U.S. economy worth more than all manufacturing and railroads combined. Did you get it? Four million slaves, the asset value of these slaves. Because if you owned a slave, you could sell the slave. The slave had an asset value. So the asset value of four million slaves was greater than all the industry and all the railroads put together at the beginning of the Civil War. My great, great grandfather was a slave owner. I have seen his will. Human beings were listed as assets. Jim Crow, now I hope I'm not um, overburdening, particularly those of you that are not Americans, so let's do this real quick. Jim Crow is what was in the United States, particularly in the South, after the Civil War until the modern time. When the Civil War ended, four million black Americans were suddenly free but this did not stop the evil. Contempt in the heart continued. Racism continued. Contempt gives permission to hate speech. Oh, brothers and sisters, contempt. Jesus spoke of contempt in Matthew chapter 5. In the same category, he spoke about murder. Contempt is a sin of violence against another person. And contempt in speech gives permission for contempt in action. And today, 
If you go to Facebook in America, you will find untold numbers, I want to say millions, of self-identified Christians writing things in Facebook that are contemptuous of other people. It's hate speech. And we seem totally unaware, totally unaware of where this comes from and what its effects are. The effects are far-reaching, the, uh, the, the effects of contempt. Just think about it for a minute. What are the effects of contempt in American society today? They are far-reaching, nationally, politically, socially. We white Americans have not told ourselves the truth about our history. We have not told ourselves the truth. We have romanticized the history. Some characteristics of the Jim Crow South glorification of the Confederacy and the romanticizing of slavery, public lynchings of African-Americans. During the Jim Crow, I mean, there were public lynchings of African-Americans. Whites would come with their picnics to, for the entertainment. Segregated neighborhoods, schools, churches, separate public toilets, drinking fountains, restaurants, hotels. Blacks required to enter buses through the rear door and sit at the back. Whites expecting blacks to know their place. This is the South I grew up in. Blacks had to get in the back of the bus, separate schools, separate bathrooms, separate everything, separate. In 1961, I began to pastor a rural church in Central Virginia. Our building housed an all-white school to avoid court-ordered integration a case of systemic racism. You see, the Supreme Court said you can't, you have to integrate the schools, and the people where my church was said, oh no, we're not sending our children to an integrated school. We have our own private white school, and we use the church building. I was part of that. All this is evil. My evil. My people have done this. So step three, we bring our sin to the cross. And it's hard for me to judge because here I am <laughs> standing in front of this camera and you're going to be hearing this in all kinds of different places and countries and everything else. But I now want to confess my sin and the sin of my people. And I don't know if there's anybody else that wants to join me. I'm not even encouraging it. But if you want to, I know some of you Americans have told me you want to. And there might be some of you non-Americans because of these sins that we're talking about are not just American sins. So if you would like to join me in this, please do. I invite you to. Even if you want to stand where you are, if you want to do that, I invite you to do it. If you don't want to do it, obviously just fine. But I would like with your permission and endurance to now confess the sins, my sins and my father's house before God. You may join me. We will use Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah chapter 1, as a guide. The components of Nehemiah's prayer, grief, Nehemiah chapter 1, grief, prayer for the nation, confession of national sins, identification with the sins of the forefathers, asking God for forgiveness.
I can only confess my own sins and the sins of my people. If other Americans wish to join me, or if you are being led to confess the sins of your people, please stand with me or join me however you would like to. We pray with Nehemiah, I and my father's house have sinned. So now, join me in prayer if you would like. Holy God, as we pray, protect us from attacks from the spiritual darkness that would come against us due to these prayers. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name to confess our sins and the sins of our people. I confess the sins of America. I confess my sins. I confess the sins of my father's house. Almighty God, we have sinned against you. Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus, I confess the sin of slavery. I and my father's house treated fellow human beings as property. We bought and sold them. We profited from their forced labor. We terribly abused them. This was a great evil. Lord, have mercy upon us. Holy Spirit, I confess the sin of racism in American society. To enslave other people we had to think of and treat them as inferior, even legally. This mindset, along with the behaviors it encourages, continues to this day. Lord, have mercy. Holy God, one ongoing attitude of slavery is that I and my father's house carry a sense of superiority. I confess and renounce all forms of white superiority. Convict us of this right now, Father. Expose our denial. Catalyze heart repentance. Father, I confess the sin of contempt. We Americans have normalized hate speech. Social media is filled with this, even by Christians. Our politics have become dysfunctional. Our country is largely ungovernable. Break the grip of this evil. Lord Jesus, I confess the sins of our American churches. Many authorized and defended slavery and the racism that followed. Lack of repentance has left us spiritually anemic and largely blind to what is going on around us. We Anglicans have been a part of this, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Holy Spirit, I confess the denial, the avoidance, the justification, all the ways we have bought into the lies that slavery was just the way things were, that it really wasn't all that bad, that its effects are not with us today. In your mercy, Lord, open our eyes. Holy Father, fill us with your authority and power to renounce these sins. We renounce the sin of slavery. We renounce the sin of racism. We renounce the sin of white supremacy. We renounce the sin of contempt. Lord, have mercy upon us. 
Lord Jesus, we lift up to your cross the hate, the cruelty, the divisiveness, the contempt. We don't want these things in us, Lord. We don't want them in our children. We don't want them in our people. We don't want them in our churches. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you taught us to pray. Deliver us from evil. So we ask right now that you would deliver us from these evils that we in our Father's house have perpetrated, participated in, colluded with, tolerated, and tried to justify. Lord, we want to pray for those we in our Father's house have sinned against. Holy Father, we ask that you would pray this prayer through us. It is too big a prayer for us. We cannot bear its weight. Lord, teach us how to pray. We pray for the millions, the generations, the family lines who have been devastated by slavery and the racism that continues to this day. Deliver them from the grip of the evil one, from the assault of evil that was unleashed upon them. We ask for deliverance from internalized hate in descendants of slaves and their family lines. Lord, in the authority of your name, Break the power of this evil. We release healing on bodies, souls, and spirits of ones who have been crushed. We praise you, Father, for the good that has endured in the African-American community. Thank you for the strength, the beauty, the overcoming. African-Americans are leading the way toward righteousness in our society. You are greater than evil. Lord, we pray for our nation. Raise up repentant hearts. Raise up Christ-like leaders. We thank you for Christian ministries of reconciliation. Bless and protect them. Raise up more that healing might flow through our land. Lord Jesus, break through the apathy of the American church. In your kindness, Make your church more of what you want us to be. Break the power of our spiritual blindness. May the healing power of your gospel flow freely among us. And now, Lord, we ask, seal each one of us with the authority of your cross. Protect us from attacks from the darkness in response to these prayers. May we be marked by you purchased by your blood and under your protection. Amen. And then the fourth step in healing the past. We ask those who we have wronged for forgiveness. We seek reconciliation. I want to close with what to me is one of the most beautiful stories of all the time that Hannah and I spent in Germany these last 20 years. Although there's so many stories, this one stands out to me. I want to tell you about it. German Christians wanted to do a march around the city of Bonn. Bonn is the city where Hannah was born. 
And they wanted to do this march around the city of Bonn, peacefully demonstrating against anti-Semitism, peacefully demonstrating in support of Israel. And they asked Hannah and me to be a part of it. And they wanted to end the march in the Marktplatz in front of the town hall with a meeting that would include Hannah reading from her book. And so we got to the place, the point where Hannah was going to leave from her book. And the date of this march was May the 3rd. Well, that's the date that Hannah's parents were gassed in Kelmno, Poland. And so Hannah decided, I'm going to read from my book, from the part in my book about, that I tell about my parents' death and me going there. And so Hannah stood up and read from her book. So there's about, I don't know, a couple hundred Germans there in the marketplace listening to Hannah read her book. She read. She comes back and sits next to me. I'm there on the front row. Unplanned, this German man gets up and walks to the mic. Probably 45 to 50 years old. Turns out he's a businessman. He comes and walks to the mic. And he says, Hannah, my grandfather was a Nazi. He was a Nazi to the day he died. My grandfather hated Jews. My grandfather killed people. My grandfather killed Jews. My grandfather was an SS officer. And Hannah, my grandfather was in Kelmno as an SS officer at the very time when your parents were gassed. And he said, I don't know what to do with that. What do I do with that? The only thing I know to do, Hannah, is to stand here and say the words that my grandfather never said. Will you forgive me? And I knew what Hannah was going to do. She stood up. She walked straight to him. She looked into his face and she said, I forgive you. And they embraced. And after the meeting, some German friends were helping us carry the books back to the car. Very godly people. And they said to us, Hannah, when you forgave Marcos, something broke in the atmosphere of Bonn. A German, Jewish, Holocaust survivor whose parents were gassed by Germans has just forgiven the grandson of an SS officer who may have been involved in that death. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the power of Christ. It's a picture of the healing of the past. It's a picture of making all things new. It's a picture of the kingdom. It's a picture of Jesus 
working bottom up, transforming the inner lives of people, sending them forth to be ambassadors of his kingdom, of his life, of his grace, of his peace. And whoever you are listening to this recording, Jesus can do the same thing in you, in your life, in your people, among your friends, among your family. He's transforming people. He's transforming nations. He's transforming cultures. The words of Isaiah. Your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.